Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. We're going to cover the last section, verses 31 through 42. If you're visiting with us for the first time today, we've been taking this long trek through the Gospel of John, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We're coming down to the end. Lord willing, we'll finish it in the next few weeks before Thanksgiving. And this morning, we're in a peculiar section of this account of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. It's this part where we might be tempted to sort of fast forward through. In fact, I think uh, we never watch live TV anymore. In fact, I, I don't. Uh, we, we always we, we Devo stuff or TiVo or whatever you call it. We record it and we fast forward through things. We want to get to the good part. And we might be tempted to think that what we read last week about the crucifixion of Jesus and then what we will look at next week, the resurrection of Jesus, is really the good part, and we fast forward through the burial of Jesus. In fact, I confess to you that a couple months ago when I was thinking about where we would be each Sunday, I don't make that kind of a law, I just kind of want to have a sense, I, I combined this passage with next week's passage because I thought, well, this is just sort of some details about the burial of Jesus, and we'll get to the glorious resurrection of Jesus, and I want to put it all together, but as, we, as I thought about it, I thought, boy, there's some gold in these hills, so we're going to look at just these verses here at the end of John 19. Let me read verses 31 through 42, and then I want us to notice several pictures in the, this text and work our way through seeing Christ, the gold in this passage for us in the burial of Jesus. John chapter 19, verses 31 through 42. This is God's holy word. It's living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of our heart. And all of us are naked before God's word. We're laid bare to him to whom he, we must give an account. That's what it says in Hebrews chapter 4. So let's approach God's word with that posture as I read it. John 19, verse 31. Jesus has been crucified. He is dead. He's breathed his last. He said, it is finished. Those glorious words that we looked at last week. And here we are in verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, meaning preparation for the Sabbath, so that means it was Friday, Jesus has died, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, meaning this particular Sabbath, every Saturday was a Sabbath for the Jews, obviously, but this one was the yearly feast, the Day of Atonement, the, when all of the people would gather in Jerusalem, a special Sabbath. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness, and John is referring to himself now anonymously, John the gospel writer. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you 
also may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, They will look on him whom they have pierced. Verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Okay, I want us to see four things in this text. In just a moment, I'm going to put them up on the screen, then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dig into it. I want you to see there's four images, there's four pictures, there's four items in this passage that I think point us to the beauty of Christ's work for us. First is unbroken legs. The second is a pierced side. Then there's two changed men. And finally, there's a garden. So unbroken legs, a pierced side, two changed men, and a garden. And I think if we see what John is intentionally pointing to with these four pictures, we'll see beauty in this text. Let me pray. Lord, help us. Uh, Lord, I just sat down there wondering while we were singing, how can a text like this, how can it meet all of the needs of all of the people in this room? There are so many situations. They're innumerable. Varying degrees of maturity, understanding, status in the Lord. Some of us know you and have known you for many years. Some of us don't know you, think we do. Some of us are aware that we're lost. Some of us are despairing of our lives. Lord, there's a multitude of situations, felt needs in this room, and Lord, how, how in your glory do you meet all our needs? Lord, show us Christ. Help us to, for a moment, get our minds and our thoughts off of ourselves so that we would see Jesus. And then, Lord, as a consequence of us seeing Jesus and seeing what he has done and who he is, Lord, as a beautiful consequence of that, consequence of that yet, Lord, yes, meet our needs. But, Lord, more than anything, we need to see and savor the beauty of Jesus. Help us now and help me explain this passage to do good to these people for your glory and for our joy. And as we come around the Lord's table on this first Sunday of October, Lord, may we feast on Christ. May you satisfy us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. First, I want us to see the significance of Jesus' unbroken bones. What's going on there? Why does John make a point to tell us that Jesus' legs were not broken, unlike the Jewish custom? Well, what would happen is, during crucifixions, which were very common in the Roman Empire, people would have been very familiar with seeing people crucified for sedition or any, any sort of uh, rebellion against the Roman Empire. When a person was crucified, often they would hang on the cross for not just hours, but sometimes several days before they died. 
And so what the Roman soldiers would do is they would break a person's leg. I know this is hard to think about, but they would break their legs so that the one being crucified could not hoist themselves up to sort of keep their air, keep their lungs cavity able to breathe. And so breaking a person's leg would cause their, the gravity to just sink and they would no longer be able to breathe, breathe which would expedite their death. And the Jews, the Jewish leaders, have asked the Romans if they can break the legs of the three that are on the cross because they didn't want these dead bodies to just hang on the cross for several days because it would be a defilement. It would break their law from the Old Testament. So let me read where we get that from in Deuteronomy chapter 21. This is the law that God gave Moses and how... Uh, people were to prepare how the, the land of Israel was to prepare for the Sabbath. And the law says, verse 22 of Deuteronomy 21, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For, listen to this, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. And so the purpose of this law, now think about think about the context here. This law given to Israel is back, you know, hundreds of years before where they are now in captivity in Rome. And so these Jewish religious leaders are asking the Roman governor to help them obey their law. And their law that God gave Moses dictated that they not leave these dead bodies hanging because it would be a defilement for the preparation of the Sabbath. And so they're saying, can we, just, can we just expedite the death here so that we can get these bodies down off the cross because it will defile our high holy feast. Just think about the irony here of this picture. The, the, they are wanting to take down the, the dead body of Jesus so that they don't defile the feast that was given to them, which is actually pointing to the one who they've just crucified, who is the only one who can actually take away their defilement. And here they are asking Pilate to do this. Note the irony. But when they get to Jesus, they realize that these Roman soldiers realize that he is already dead. And so even though they have broken the legs of the Two beside Jesus, when they get to Jesus in the middle cross, they don't break his legs. Why is that significant? Because it fulfills this thread, this line in the Old Testament that speaks prophetically about Jesus on the cross from Psalm 34 and verse 20, speaking of God's preservation of Jesus, the ultimate afflicted one on the cross. And it says this, there's this little thread in Psalm 34, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. And that's the scripture that John in our text is referring to in verse 36. This little fulfillment of the shadow that's pointing to Jesus. But why is that significant? Why is this unbroken bone, is it just something that God wanted to insert in there to be another kind of proof of who Jesus is? Well, maybe, yes, in part, it is fulfilled prophecy, and it's important. It's another thing that we can read and see that, oh, the Lord is orchestrating all of this. Even these minor details about the death of Jesus, the Lord is orchestrating it so that here, thousands of years later, we might be convinced and believe and spurred on to trust the Scriptures. But even more than that, it's a picture. Why is it important that Jesus' bones aren't broken? 
Because he is a picture of the perfect, unblemished Passover lamb. And here the irony just continues, and it gets incredibly thick and rich. So I want us to go to Exodus chapter 12, and I want to read to you the account of Israel being brought out of Egyptian captivity. They're, they're, they're captive in Egypt for years and years and years. God raises up Moses, this deliverer, and he sends these plagues to wrestle Israel from the clenched fist of the Pharaoh. Finally, Pharaoh relents. Finally, he says, okay, take them. And then on this night of the Passover, God instructs, instructs Moses to instruct the people to, to slaughter a perfect lamb and to take the blood of that lamb and to put it on the doorposts of their, of their doors and the angel of God's judgment would pass over. Let me read to you this account from Exodus chapter 12. And this sign in Exodus chapter 12, in fact, the whole rescue of Israel from Egypt in the Old Testament, as significant as it is for those people and the life of Israel, is ultimately meant to be a shadow that points to the very cross of Christ that we've been reading about. So let's read from Exodus chapter 12, verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt. So he's already sent all of these plagues, ten plagues, I believe. And finally Pharaoh's relented. In verse 2, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, he shall take his take, he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, each each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb, verse five, listen to this, your lamb shall be without blemish. It's pointing into Jesus' sinlessness, his perfection. A male, a year old, you may Take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with leavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will... Strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods, lowercase g, of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I, the Lord speaking in the first person, this him, this angel that he sends, it's the Lord. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so this Jesus on the cross is a picture of this perfect Passover lamb whose blood was spilled for our judgment, to receive our judgment. But notice here then at the end of of, of Exodus chapter 12 and verse 46, listen to what he says about this Passover lamb 
Exodus 12, verse 46, he says, Of this lamb, this blood has been applied. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. And so do you see this beautiful picture that God has woven here? There's this perfect lamb that's preserved in this Old Testament Passover, rescuing from Egypt. And it's a picture of Jesus who becomes the personification, the, the, the substance that the shadow of this, of this Passover in the Old Testament is pointing to. And Jesus, just like this Passover lamb whose legs were not to be broken, his legs are not broken on the cross, which is coming full circle. It's as if Jesus is this full representation. He is this full representation of what the shadow of the Passover in the Old Testament is pointing to. You don't need rescue temporarily from Egypt. You don't need rescue primarily, primarily from Rome. You need rescue from God and His judgment. And the only thing that will satisfy is the perfect Lamb who is Christ. But notice that Jesus' blood takes away our judgment, but we are also to feast metaphorically on his flesh. The Old Testament Jews were commanded to eat the Passover lamb. And just as we read months ago when we went through John 6, I know it's been about a year and a half now, but I'm sure you remember Jesus says, eat my flesh and drink my blood, which is what we're going to do today. So when we celebrate the Lord's Supper and we have this little piece of bread and this little tiny cup of juice we are remembering that Jesus died on the cross so that the judgment of God would pass over us. He would absorb it for us all. But not just that. As we put it into our mouths, we feast on the nourishment that is the person and work of Christ. So on the cross, he's not just the sacrifice for our sins. He is the sustenance of our lives. And we remember that when we come to the table. And here we see this, this lamb, the perfect lamb with unbroken bones. We see this Old Testament picture come in vivid color before our eyes. Jesus, the one who takes away our judgment and whom we feast on, the unbroken bone, perfect lamb of God. There's the unbroken bone. Secondly, we see a pierced side. A pure side. We see these Roman soldiers. So just to confirm that he was dead, they pierce his side. They didn't need to take, break his, his legs because they noted that it was obvious to them that he was dead. And so a soldier pierces his side and something remarkable happens. Verse 35 of our text says that at once there came out blood and water. What's going on there? Why is that, why is that text, text significant? Well, for a couple reasons. I think primarily uh, on the surface, one of the things that John is wanting to highlight here is the humanity of Jesus. He's wanting us to see, and this again is a vivid picture, that Jesus had real flesh and blood. And as his side is pierced, out of him flowed blood and water. And there's lots of scientific reasons about what's going on there. And I'm obviously not uh, a, a medical examiner or a, a coroner. I don't understand all of the processes that happens in the human body after death, but there are many witnesses through the history of the church that have explained this well, but I think just for our purposes here, we need to realize that John is wanting to highlight that what is coming out of Jesus is physical blood and water, and I think he's wanting to highlight for us the actual, real, flesh and blood humanity 
of Jesus. And one of the things that was probably on John's mind when he wrote this, probably a couple decades after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, was a theological error that was floating around in the first century amongst the church at the time called docetism. And this word docetism means that it only appears to be. And it was this theological error, really this heresy, that people were teaching that Jesus wasn't, clearly he's God, but he didn't really appear in the flesh. He only appeared to be in the flesh, sort of in a ghost-like form, but he didn't have real flesh and blood like us. And John is probably very concerned about this error because that is a wrong understanding of Jesus. That's not what the scriptures teach. In fact, in John's next letter that he writes, his his first epistle at the end of the New Testament, he says this. He's so worried about this. This is what he says in 1 John 4. He said, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone into the world. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus is not that does not confess Jesus, is not from God. So John is very concerned that if somebody says that Jesus didn't truly come in the flesh, he's not of God. In fact, he says, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he that's in the world. Why is John so concerned about this, and why does he want us to see this picture that the real flesh and blood uh, real water, real, real entails come out of Jesus because he wants us to know that Jesus is really human. He really became like us. He knows us. There's nothing that we face that Jesus doesn't really face. If you take away the humanity of Jesus, then Hebrews, the letter of Hebrews, falls apart. Because the writer of Hebrews says that he had to become like us in every way so that he could be a merciful and high priest. Do not believe the lie that Jesus does not understand or that nobody could understand what you've gone through. Jesus does. He's become like us. And he's tasted everything that we have tasted yet without sin. This is a marvelous truth of the gospel. That God became like us so that we might be made new like him. But I think there's a spiritual symbolism, an even more important symbolism that John wants us to get to to understand this pure side. And it's the beauty of the blood and the water. What does that mean? Why does John use those two phrases, the blood and the water? We know that this Old Testament picture of the blood of these sacrificed animals is the picture of atonement. It's what makes, it's what satisfies the wrath of God on our behalf. In the Old Testament sacrifices, it would cleanse Israel temporarily. And it's a picture that's pointing to the blood of the perfect Lamb, Jesus, who once and for all, His blood spilt for us, His sacrifice on the cross is what makes us right. It satisfies God's judgment. We've sang that when we sang in Christ alone. John says this, 1 John 1, 7. He He says that the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. But how does that blood, how does it get to us? It gets to us through the Holy Spirit. And all throughout the Bible, the Holy Spirit 
An analogy for the Holy Spirit is water. And so when Jesus' side is pierced and we see this blood flow out of him and this water flow out of him, I believe it is a picture of how the gospel comes to us. How does the blood get to us? Through the water of the Holy Spirit that applies the blood of the Lamb to our dead hearts and makes us alive. This is what John says in John 3, 5. We see this picture of blood and spirit, blood and water all throughout his gospel. John 3, 5. Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And what does John mean in verse 5 when he says, unless one is born of water? He's not referring to the physical aspect of birth where a woman's water breaks when she's about ready to have a baby. But in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Ezekiel, the, the word water is mixed with the work of the Spirit. And so John is basically saying here in Old Testament phraseology that unless one is born of the Spirit, in this symbol of the water, the water is a picture of the Holy Spirit. Unless one is born of the Spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. And what's flowing out of Jesus is this gospel that's coming to us, the blood that is applied to us through the work of the Spirit. He says in John chapter 4, verse 14, again, speaking of this, this water and this spirit in his conversation with the woman at the well, he says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. John 7, 38, 39, again, we see this water coming out, the Holy Spirit. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, Jesus says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And when we get to the end of John here in a few weeks, we'll see how he gives the Spirit. And so we see this symbolism that John is showing us, this blood, this water, Jesus' work, the water that comes, the Spirit applies the blood of Jesus. And we see this Old Testament prophecy fulfilled again. John is pointing us to see how God has planned from the beginning for Jesus to be crucified. Zechariah, listen to this beautiful passage in this, this minor prophet in the Old Testament, Zechariah, that we will look at eventually here on a Sunday night as we're working through the Old Testament prophets. There's this picture that God gives this prophet, Zechariah, to cause Israel to point towards this ultimate fulfillment that we see on the cross. So this is written hundreds of years before the cross, and Zechariah utters these words to Israel about this day that is fulfilled on the cross. And I will pour out, Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So what's going on there? Zechariah is pointing Israel to this day when the people of God will look to him whom they've pierced. Who is that? It's Jesus. This strange, obscure prophecy about this one that they will look whom they have pierced upon who they will look upon, is fulfilled in Jesus. And then a few verses later in Zechariah 13, verse 1, the Lord says, On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin 
and uncleanness as they look upon the pierced side of this one, they will mourn, they will have repentance, and out of it will flow rivers of living water by which the people of God will be cleansed. And we see this fulfilled on the cross, on Jesus, in Jesus, in his pierced side. So here's just this beautiful, before we move on, just this beautiful irony. This, this thing that these Roman soldiers, here's this beautiful paradox of the gospel. This thing that the Roman soldiers meant to be a sign to confirm his death, the piercing of his side, God uses to be a sign of the way he brings spiritual life. You see that? Isn't that glorious how how God mocks the wisdom of the world? They thought it confirmed that he was dead. Blood and water is flowing out of him. But it's a picture of how the Spirit applies the blood and gives life. The flesh can do nothing at all, Jesus says in John 6. It is the Spirit who gives life. And we see this in this obscure prophecy fulfilled on the cross as Jesus' side is pierced. Thirdly, two changed men. Oh, I find this so encouraging. Two changed men. Two changed men. G- John mentions these two men, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. It's the first time we've heard of Joseph, but we've heard of Nicodemus a little bit before, famously in John chapter 3 and one other time. But let's look at Joseph of Arimathea. Who, who is he? And what's going on here? Why, why is he important? Well, in the other gospel accounts, we know from Mark 15, for example, that he's a member of the Sanhedrin. We know from Matthew chapter 27 that he, he was a rich man. Luke mentions that he was looking for the kingdom of God. And John in his text, our original text, John 19 uh, verse 38, says that he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. So he's, he's of the upper ruling religious class. He's a man of great means, but he was following Jesus secretly up to this point. But something happened in Joseph's heart where the crucifixion of Jesus causes him to go from the shadows of secrecy to the light of telling Pilate, I want his body, exposing himself as a follower of Jesus. What's going on there? Well, first of all, prophecy is fulfilled in this this movement of Joseph. Isaiah 53, this beautiful passage that we read often during during Good Friday and, and, and Resurrection Sunday, says this, Isaiah 53, verse 9, prophetically speaking about Jesus, and they made his grave with the wicked, in other words, these two criminals that he was crucified with, and with a rich man in his death. So Isaiah, speaking prophetically, hundreds of years before this, just inserts this line about how he would be with a rich man in his death, and it's fulfilled by Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, who's this rich man who asks for his body. These little details that God is weaving together to be a proof of his sovereign plan of redemption. And then we have Nicodemus. We're somewhat familiar with Nicodemus. He had this famous conversation with with Jesus at night. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, and he asks him, he asks him this sincere question, like, how, how can a man, you know, you're, you're this teacher, what's going on? Tell me more. How can a man be 
born again? Does he have to enter into his mother's womb a second time? Like, what are you talking about, Jesus? He didn't have a paradigm for the spiritual birth that Jesus was talking about. But he came to Jesus at night. Sort of, sort of, again, the, the thought is that he was afraid to be seen conversing with Jesus. But then we see a progression where he sort of steps up a little bit. In John chapter 7, when the heat was starting to be turned up on Jesus, Nicodemus in John chapter 7 comes and defends Jesus and says, hey, wait a minute, we've got a law that tells us how to handle these things, so let's not rush this guy through the courts, but let's give him a fair hearing. And here, Nicodemus, along with his rich man Joseph, brings 75 pounds of spices and helps to prepare Jesus' body for burial. What are we to make of these two changed men? First, I want to be clear to say that the Bible doesn't tell us anything really definitive about their spiritual condition. We don't know ultimately where the souls of Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus rest. But they are here for a reason. Something must have happened. And I believe that the Holy Spirit inspired John to include them as sort of coming out of the shadows in boldness after the crucifixion of Jesus to give us a picture of the work of God in the hearts of people who we wouldn't think stand a chance to be, to trust in Jesus. Here's this rich man. Who could, who could stay in the shadows. He could, he could secretly continue to follow Jesus and, and not ruffle the feathers of his social status. And here we have Nicodemus, this teacher, and he's had these few interactions with Jesus, but he, he resurfaces. What's going on here? I think this is a picture that no one is beyond God. No one, no one is beyond a second chance. There's just something about these men that when they see the crucified Jesus, it changes them. And friends, how are we, what are we to make of this? I, I wonder if there's somebody in here that believes that they've had chance after chance after chance, and they've blown it, and they believe they are beyond grace. That is not true. Maybe the Holy Spirit put these two men in this text for you to remind you that you too can come out from the shadows of your secrecy, come out from whatever binds you, and see the risen Jesus. You're not too far gone. You're not. John says about his gospel that he has written these things so that we might believe. And maybe the believing that you have to do is to believe that God can redeem and save a person like you. You see, there's a way that you can actually believe the Bible in a kind of 30,000 foot sort of way. You can believe everything that the Bible says, you can believe that the gospel is true, but you can also, in believing that thing, you can believe that that plane could never really land in your life. And friends, maybe this text, maybe these two men, maybe whatever change happened in their heart is meant for you to see that no, that plane, that truth that you believe can be for you. For you. Don't believe the lie that you're beyond saving. These two changed men are a picture of God's redeeming grace. And finally, the garden. Uh, I mean, th th this, this is a beautiful picture. Uh, I don't think I'm reading anything into this. I think this is here for a reason. Maybe, maybe this is just sanctified imagination. But if it is, let it be that. 
I'm not building a doctrine out of verse 41. I'm just saying, I think there's something there. Let me read John 19, verse 41. Now there, in a place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Why does he mention garden again? Because I think John is intentionally pointing us backwards and forwards. Backwards to the garden in Genesis, where salvation, fellowship with God was lost, and forward to that day when it will all be regained. Genesis chapter 2 is this beautiful picture. I won't take the time to read it. But it's this picture of this beautiful garden that God puts Adam in. And this, this garden has rivers flowing through it. And this trees, this multitude of trees. and Trees of all sorts of beauty. Trees of life and death. Knowledge of good and evil. God commands him to not eat just from that one tree. And in that one garden, that fateful garden, Adam failed. And fellowship was God, with God was lost. And mankind was excommunicated from the presence of God. And now all of us, all of us have been born of Adam we are all separated from God. We are outside of the garden of goodness, of his peace. And Jesus here is laid to rest. He's crucified and laid to rest in a garden to recapture for us, to show us that he's taking us back to the garden. But the garden that he's taking us back to is actually the new garden the new creation, the new heavens, the new earth, salvation in Christ, which will be forever. Let me read to you about the new garden. Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on the either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. Remember what we read in Deuteronomy, how Jesus became a curse for us by hanging on a tree? So he took, because of the curse of the garden of Adam's fall, Jesus goes to a garden, takes the curse for us to make the garden new. No longer will there be anything cursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Do you see this beautiful picture? John weaves in this thread of the garden to show us that the, the death of the first garden will give way to the life of the second garden and is accomplished by Jesus' death in this garden, which points us to Christ. Friends, he makes all things right for his glory and our joy. And we, we who are in Christ, will dwell with him forever. And that's what we come to celebrate as we come to the Lord's table. We come to feast on this Passover lamb that changes men whose side was pierced, who's created, who's gone before us to bring us back to fellowship with God. If you are a believer in Jesus, whether you're a member of this church or not, 
But if you are a believer, a follower of Jesus, and believe like this gospel like we do, you are welcome to this table. But if you're not a believer in Jesus, we don't want you to receive this meal with us, not because we want to exclude you or embarrass you in any way, but we don't want you to confess something. We don't want you to say something that you don't yet believe. And when we take this cup and this bread, we are saying we are saying what we've read about, what Israel said in Egypt and what, what we say in this garden that Christ is our Passover lamb and we are in him and he alone is our salvation and the judgment of God is something that he has absorbed for us and now we feast on his goodness until that day when he will finally bring us home all the way home to the new garden where we will be with him forever. That's what we're saying when we feast on this cup and on this bread. And so if you're not yet believing that, you can just let people move out of the aisle and receive the elements. And we pray that this text might be part of God's plan to help you see and believe in this gospel. I'm going to pray. The worship team is going to lead us in a song. And as you are ready, believers, as you are ready, go to the table nearest you. Take the bread, and the cup, and then Springer will lead us to receive it together. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this text. Thank you for this beautiful picture. Thank you for the burial of Jesus, for the unbroken bones of the perfect Passover lamb and the pierced side of the crucified Savior who out of him flows rivers of living water and the blood that only, only the blood that can save us, the blood of the perfect lamb. Thank you that you change hearts and that you promise to bring your people all the way home. Let us feast now on Christ as we come to the table together. In Jesus' name, amen.